you ever known somebody, and I know you have, because everybody, everybody has people like this in their lives, you either know them or you know about them, someone that you just said, this, this is the last person to ever come to faith in Christ. This, this is just the last person. It might be because, of, uh, because they're activists against Christianity, or it might be because they're so apathetic to anything having to do with Jesus. You just think there's just, this would be the last person that I would expect. And I think you and I would feel that way about a man named uh, Muhammad Ahmed as he languished in a prison in Ethiopia for having killed a man named Tulu. And having killed him because Tulu was a follower of Jesus and because he was sharing his faith with other people. So Tulu was a, a young man, um, probably about 15 years old, 14, 15 years old, when he came to faith in Christ out of a Muslim background. And it changed everything for him. One of the things that it changed is he went from having these disabilities that kept him from being able to go to secondary school to all of a sudden being able to go to secondary school. And he was going to secondary school. And he was known for being a young man of prayer, a young man who spent all kinds of time in the Bible, but also a young man that shared his faith with his fellow students and with anybody he had a chance to share his faith with. And he was known for being affectionate and warm in the sharing of his faith. So uh, one day... Uh, not long after Tula became a Christian, some um, extremist Muslims in his area became very angry. These five men attacked him. They attacked him with a spear. And they actually not, not only stabbed him in, in various ways, but also penetrated all the way down to his skull with a spear. And through some surgeries and, um, and recovery and all of that, he was well enough to go back, uh, back to school. And... Um, before he was attacked, one of the interesting things was, was his, his mom tells the story, before he was attacked, uh, there were four known followers of Jesus in that entire area. But after his attack, after, after they had attacked him for his faith, people started becoming Christians in that area. And with, before long, 50 people were known to be followers of Jesus, including his parents who became followers of Jesus after the attack. But there was another attack that happened a few years later. And that one didn't have, unfortunately, the same result. It was one day at school, and Muhammad Ahmed uh, attacked him. He came with a machete, and with one blow across his throat, he killed Tulu while screaming a jihadist um, attack uh, phrase. The parents, before he died, the parents tried to get him to the clinic as quickly as possible, but on the way there, Tulu, who was at this point 19 years old, uh, died. Muhammad Ahmed was arrested, uh, he was tried, and he was sentenced to prison. And in this prison in southern Ethiopia, where he was languishing, there were two local Christian leaders who had permission to go into the prison and to talk to the prisoners and encourage the prisoners. And so they would, um, they would stop and they would talk to Muhammad Ahmed. Now, Ahmed would not respond to them at all. But they would just give them words of encouragement. And um, over time, because of their friendliness, because of the fact that they would tell him time and again that they held no grudge against him, he started listening and he started adding, asking questions. And before you know it, Ahmed, this guy who had killed Tula for his faith, became a follower of Jesus. And you just imagine with me, as the prison authorities allowed, with some, you know, couple of guards with him, allowed these two men to take Muhammad Ahmed 
out of the prison into a local church and baptize him in the name of the God that he used to persecute. There's just some people that seem to be like the last people we would expect to come to faith in Jesus. And one of those people is the subject of our passage today in Acts chapter 9. His name was Saul, and he was a persecutor of believers. And, uh, and you might know him uh, better by his second name, which is Paul, Paul the Apostle. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the whole passage, and then we'll look at those five, those five elements that are always there with an authentic conversion experience. Beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, Syria, so that, he, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, belonged to Christianity, who were followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and, all, uh, and the, all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, this is the last guy I would expect to become a follower of Jesus. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, who are non-Jews, which Gentiles means, and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show you how much, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus 
is the Messiah. So this passage has a lot to teach us about what it looks like to have an authentic conversion. It's a very unique passage. It's not like we're all going to have visions and, you know, flashing lights and someone come and lay hands on us, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. But every conversion story in the book of Acts is unique, and all of our stories are unique. But there are some things here that are common to all conversions, and that's what we're going to be looking at. And the first element of an authentic conversion is a personal encounter with Jesus. It's at some point, if you're going to convert to Christianity, it means you are going to become a follower of Jesus. You have to end up with a personal encounter. It has to be personal. It has to be your own. It's something that you recognize. You become, you, you become cognizant of and accepting and receive the whole idea of who Jesus was and who Jesus is, his sacrifice for us on the cross and for you on the cross. And his lordship, the fact that he is our leader, he is our rightful leader, that he's God. And so he leads us because he is the creator of the universe. He is the Lord of the entire universe. And he is loving and he cares for you and understanding his grace. It's a personal encounter with all of that. Uh, the second uh, element is a humble surrender to God. A humble surrender to God. Now, this description of this firebrand, this zealous guy who's going in and persecuting fellow Jews who are followers of Jesus is striking when it shows you what happens to him. He is marching into Damascus in order to go into the synagogues and look for other Jews who are followers of Jesus. And he is going to take them away in shackles. Instead, the tables get turned and instead, he's being led by the hand. It's just a, this, this, this pathetic um, picture of this man who has now been so humbled, just being led by the hand, not able to see anymore, and waiting for some undistinguished guy named Ananias, this man who has, you know, can, has authority from the high priest, who has, has been in the corridors of power all of a sudden is just waiting for some guy named Ananias to come and lay hands on him so that he can see again. Just an incredible portrait of humble surrender. And a humble surrender is what has to happen in all of our lives in order for us to come to faith. An author named Roy Clemens, and this is how he puts it, and this is, this is somewhat of a, an exaggeration, but it, really the point should be, you should take the point for what it is. He says, I don't use the phrases decided for Christ or committed to Christ, though decision and commitment are certainly involved. Conversion is at the root, not a decision or a commitment, but a surrender to the supreme authority of Jesus. And what he's saying here is, when we talk about I decided to follow Jesus, I am committed to Christ, it really puts a lot of emphasis on us, doesn't it? It's like, this is what I've done. You know, it's almost like, yeah. What he's saying is, really, even though there's a decision involved, even though there's a commitment involved, really what it is is a surrender. There's no eh about it. It's surrendering to Christ. And what's the catalyst for this? What's the catalyst for this surrender? Well, part of it is the recognition that we are the cause of Jesus on the cross. It's one of the themes in the book of Acts at the very beginning of the book of Acts in the first sermons of the apostles. It kind of catches you by surprise if you're paying attention. Because while Peter, for example, preaches to some of the leaders who actually did conspire to put Jesus on the cross, conspired with the Romans, 
while he speaks to them and says, you put Jesus, you put our Messiah on the cross. He also speaks to people who have just come into town, never heard of Jesus, had nothing to do with anything that happened to Jesus on the cross, and he says, you put our Messiah, Jesus, on the cross. You killed Jesus. We all have a role in that because he is on the cross for our sins. We all have a role in that. That's part of something that should humble us. Charles Spurgeon, the famous um, 19th century preacher from Britain, uh, told a story in one of his sermons to his congregation. It was a story that they all knew about because they had read about it in the papers, but it was about a man and his wife who were just really nasty, vicious people. And they were so, so such mean-spirited people that when they had a baby boy, uh, the family, the rest, part of the, some of their relatives came to them and offered them money for the boy. And they were concerned that this boy would be either neglected or abused. They had no hope for these people to become good parents. And they gave up the boy for the money. And so things went from bad to worse in their lives. He eventually became this thief, this kind of highway thief that would hide on deserted parts of roads. And if he saw a target, he would go and mug and mug them and, 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 and rob them. And one day he was in a particularly bad mood, I mean really, really bad mood, and he saw this rich man coming down the road, walking down the road, and he, he just felt so angry. He looked at this guy and he said, he just this, like he took all of his, his life, his problems that he has, and he projected it on this guy just because he was rich. And he jumped him, and in his anger he went too far, and he actually murdered him. And he was arrested for that. He was caught, and he was arrested for that. And it wasn't until after he arrest, was arrested that he discovered that this, this man, a young man, actually was his son that he'd given up. The son had been raised by some loving adoptive parents, been sent off to school, he had done well in school, he had gone off to make his money, he had made some good money, and he had decided he wanted to return back to his hometown where he was born he knew about his parents, and he wanted to see if he could redeem them in some way. And what this guy had discovered was that he had not only killed his son, he had killed a son who had come to redeem him. That's our story. That's our story. Jesus went to the cross to redeem us because of our sin. We're not separated from God. We're not making a mess of his world. We're not broken. He doesn't go to the cross. It's because of us, we had a part. And so authentic Christian knows that they have helped kill their redeemer. And if you get that, I mean, at some point, if you actually own that idea, you either will despair for yourself or you will fall at his feet, surrender to him, and live in his forgiveness and live in his leadership. If you get that, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that when we have an authentic conversion that there will be a humble surrender of our hearts and our lives to Jesus. A third element that's going to be there is a reevaluation of everything in light of Christ, looking back at our lives and, and just reevaluating everything. And that reevaluation happens right away when we become believers. You can't have a life changing encounter with Jesus. And it is going to be, if you have an encounter with Jesus that brings you to surrender to Him, that is going to be life changing. You can't have that without reevaluating everything in your life, your values, uh, your lifestyle, um, 
how you use your time, everything goes under the microscope. And you see this in Paul as he begins to preach. Right away, it says, in Damascus, he goes into the synagogues where he was going to root out followers of Jesus, and instead, he is preaching Jesus. And what is he doing? He's reevaluated his Bible. The Bible, same authority, but he's got a new perspective. Same Bible, same authority in his life. And all of a sudden, he could see what was there all along. All of a sudden, he could see that the Bible had been pointing to Jesus all along, and he had been blind to it. And so he, through this re-evaluation, he goes in there, and it says he begins to teach that Jesus is the Son of God, this Jesus who was crucified, which is just something that he could never have accepted before, and that this Jesus is the Messiah, proving, it says, proving that he was the Messiah. So what he's doing is he's opening his Bible, and he's saying, look at what it says. The Messiah would suffer. The Messiah would die for our sins. And showing them through the Old Testament how that was. That's what it means by proving it. And the reality is if you follow, become a follower of Jesus and you believe this message, how can you not reevaluate everything? The Bible says that when we become Christians... We move from darkness to light. It uses that image over and over and over again. And we move, it says it goes even farther and deeper. It says we move from the dominion or rule of darkness to the rule of Christ, the rule of Christ's kingdom. Um, I've talked before about how I don't do well walking around in the pitch darkness. I mean, some people have a sense, you know, even in the dark of where they are, I just lose immediately any sense of where I am. I bump into things. Um, I walk too far. I turn too soon. I'm not even going in the right direction. If I take my phone out, I don't even know why I don't take it out right from the beginning. Why even try? But I take my phone out and I shine the flashlight. I think I'm going this way and I'm going this way. <laughs> I, just, I just lose all sense of where I'm at when I'm in the dark. Um, and when we come into the light of Christ, it's inevitable that the light is going to come on and we're going to see, oh my goodness, all kinds of things that I've got to reevaluate, that I've got to, I've got to change the way that, that I think and act and do and all of this. I've got, to, I've got to change that. It's inevitable they're going to see, oh my goodness, I've been going in the wrong direction. I've been walking in the dark, but, but I've been going in the wrong direction. How can you not reevaluate everything when you come into a relationship with Christ? In fact, the acid test that your faith is not authentic is that you haven't reevaluated things. That, that you, you kind of took on Jesus, you know, you maybe prayed a prayer because you were in a church service like this and the pastor said, pray this prayer. And you did it. And you wanted a Christian experience. You wanted something. You want to have some kind of experience. But you walked away and it didn't, didn't change anything. It didn't cause you to reevaluate everything in your life. And that's like the acid test that you don't really know Jesus. You just prayed a prayer. That's all, that's all you did. Or you just went to church for years. Or you just got baptized, but you haven't reevaluated everything. It's like the acid test that, that something is lacking. Authentic conversion ought to cause us to reevaluate how we feel about everything. And some of the big issues. As Christians, we ought, to, we ought to know it should cause us to reevaluate how we feel about immigration and about immigrants. Because the Bible talks about immigrants over and over again foreigners among you. It should cause us to reevaluate how we feel about race and racism. 
how we feel about sexuality and what we think about sexuality and about gender issues, about injustices in our world and systemic poverty because all those things are talked about in the Bible. So it should cause us, whatever our positions were before that, we need to look at the scripture and, and see how it is, what we feel about those, what we think about those, what our values are around those things. Now I'm gonna take just one of the big issues right now and I wanna drill down into it uh, a little bit and it's one that's been in the news lately uh, thanks to the governor of Virginia. And if you haven't read the story, um, I'm not going to tell you the whole story right now. But thanks to the governor of Virginia and the controversy about his yearbook picture, the most, at least at the beginning, most of the articles and when they've spoken about him have commented on this is just his latest thing because one week earlier he had spoken about abortion. And in speaking about abortion, he had rattled a lot of cages because he was in support of a bill that one of the legislators was pushing through their house, their legislature, and she was um, in that bill, she was, uh, the bill makes abortion legal for any reason leading right up to the birth of a baby, right up to the moment of birth of the baby. And in his somewhat confusing comments where he said, oh, I will tell you, because he's a, he's a medical doctor, I will tell you exactly what this is about and what happens. It, it kind of leaves you going, I'm not sure what you just said, but it sounds like infanticide. So he was already in a lot of hot water. So that's the issue that I want to speak about just for a moment. And I never speak on this issue without saying a couple of things. One of them is that if you've had an abortion, we're not condemning you. We've had people, members of our church, right from up here share their story about having an abortion. We're a church filled with people, every single one of us, who fail to do the very things that we say we believe in, time and time again. But we're a group of people that come alongside each other in order to help each other do the things that we say we believe in. That's why God has created the church, is so that we can be an encouragement to each other. We don't condemn each other. We, we seek to encourage each other to live in the way that God has called us to live. The second thing that I always say is, is you can't speak on a subject like abortion without everybody think, without a lot of people thinking this is a political uh, statement that I'm making. I'm not making a political statement. I'm talking about us as believers. That's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us as believers. In politics, there are all kinds of policies, and we will be in different places on what the policy should be. But what our own actions and the way that we should look at something when the scripture is clear on something is something that we ought to agree on as much as possible. So those are the two things I wanted to say. So the rationale for abortion in our culture right now, the rationale for abortion uh, that's given, and especially the rationale that's given with the New York law, with the Virginia possibly passing this law, that basically allows, and really it had always been allowed to a great degree, abortion right up to the last second. Abortion right up to the last second, even right before birth. The rationale is, is just an extension, it's a logical extension of the arguments made culturally for all abortions, which is the right of a woman to do whatever she wants with her own body. So the, right at the center of the central argument for it is an argument for ownership. 
The woman owns her own body. And, and um, I don't think anybody disagrees with that, I, with that, that that is at the center of this. Nobody disagrees that that is at the center of this. I read an article this week, though. It was an editorial. One of the editors of, of Christianity Today magazine that brought a new angle that I had not, well, maybe I thought of, but not quite as crisply and precisely as she puts it. Uh, but this is, this is what she writes. As abortion advocates rightly decry abuse against women as a violent infringement on the body, they fail to see the double standard. That Roe enables women to legally practice an equally violent infringement on the body of an unborn. In any abortion case, a mother's bodily ownership leads to a child's isolation and death. And then she, she adds this. She says, it's worth noting that some scholars see close parallels between the 1957 Dred Scott decision, which left slaves as the legal property of their owners, and Roe, which left the unborn children as the legal property of their mothers. And then she brings a Christian perspective. So she's not just, she's not condemning, she's not decrying, she's just saying, this is, this is the logic. We have to understand as Christians, we don't buy into this logic. And so um, this is what she says. If owning yourself is clearly the wrong vision, and she argues that before, that the right one is intensely unintuitive and almost jarring to consider. We're called to stewardship, not ownership. And that's true for men and women. That the Bible tells us that we do not belong to ourselves. That those things that we consider to be ours, the things that we have bought, we have worked for, all those things, that they are not ours ultimately. They belong to God. We are stewards of everything, including our own, our own bodies. And that's just one little slice of a much larger discussion and a bunch of other reasons why as Christians, we would believe that abortion is, is not a good solution, and it is wrong. Just a little slice of that. Um, but, but that's the kind of thing that happens when we become Christians. We reevaluate everything, and one of those things is who we even are and what our bodies are, and this should extend into everything that we do. So the third element of an authentic conversion is this reevaluation of everything in our lives from the big issues of our day to the simple things, everyday things of our relationships with people, how we view our work, for students, how we view our schooling, our fellow students. It should penetrate into everything that we do. The fourth element is inclusion into a new family. And this is, this is emphasized in a really dramatic way in this passage. The first one is what Jesus says to Saul. What does he say? He says, why are you persecuting me? Well, I mean, Saul didn't get in an argument with him. But he said, even, even if he goes, oh, I didn't realize you're real. But I wasn't doing anything to you. I was doing things to your followers. Right. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me when, they're, when he's persecuting other believers? The other way that it's dramatically uh, illustrated in this passage is when, when Ananias comes to him and lays hands on him in his opening words, Brother Saul, you're now part of our family, Saul. You hated us, you tried to kill us, but now you're part of our family. The most common phrase that uh, describes what a Christian is, at least in the writings of Paul, 
and it eclipses everything. I mean, it's like this much compared to other descriptions of what a Christian is, is a phrase, in Christ. He says this all the time, that as believers, we are in Christ. Now, it ha- it's a profound topic in and of itself. We're not going to go into it uh, in any kind of a detail. But it is because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We talk a lot about Christ being in us. Maybe five references in the whole New Testament to that. I don't know how many in Christ. I mean, it's multiple, multiple references about us being in him. And it's more than just something like, you know, like we got his name on us, we're Christians, you know, that kind of a thing. It's, it's something tangible that we are in Christ. It's because we're in Christ that persecuting believers, persecuting the church, which Paul goes on to say is the body of Christ, is persecuting Jesus. It's because of that. And given what Jesus says to Paul, his, like his opening words to the Apostle Paul when he appears to him, his, given what he says, it is, it's not surprising that Paul has a very robust theology in his letters of what the church is and how important the church is. And what Jesus says to Saul should cause us to deepen our understanding of the church, of our fellow believers, of a church family, of a local church family. Speaking on this whole idea of being in Christ and the importance of the church in Paul's teaching, uh, author Julie um, Canlis says this. She says, when you are united to Christ, because that's part of what in those words are actually used, when you're united to Christ, you're put into a family. There are no only children in the kingdom. You're put into a family. You may not like the family that you've been put into, but you're put into a family when you are united to Christ. Now, what she says, um, it's a great article um, where she says this in another article I read this week. Um, when, she, when she says this, she's got this one thing that she says basically to kids, to students, to parents. I think it's uh, in the... In, in the uh, Sermon application guide, I think it's one of the questions for family discussion, because I forgot to mention this earlier, every week we follow the kids, not this week, because they won't moved on from Acts 9, but there's a quote, it's in your outlines, uh, that I want to share with you, because this should cause some discussion in your family. She says, growing up, I, like most children at the time, had to go to church. I'm eternally grateful to my parents for not making this an option. Because as a child, I didn't know that the church is like being a family. You can't opt out. If you opt out of family, this is what happens if you opt out of family. You grow up not knowing yourself. You have to learn the family dynamics. You have to go to the family reunions. You have to eat the traditional family foods and endure some of the family craziness. That's reality. If you ever leave the church, because they're a bunch of crazies. Yep. <laughs> I was having a conversation yesterday with a guy that I oftentimes work on, work on sermons at uh, Black Sheep uh, Coffee Cafe in South St. Paul. And this guy who plays in the band, they, there's always a, there's two different bands that come in and do bluegrass. And, and one of the guys and I have gotten talking over the last few weeks. I've gotten him reading a biography of the Apostle Paul by, you know, arguably the 
the greatest New Testament scholar who wrote a biography of him. And he's just loving this, this book. And he goes, I'm 72 years old. I can't believe I have not known this stuff. I'm going to church all my life. And he says, but I've been a skeptic all my life. He says, that I am a follower of Jesus right now is just like, can only be God because I am born to be a skeptic. He says, when I was in college, when I first went to college, he said, I, or in the senior year, he dropped out of church because they were a bunch of hypocrites. And then he got back into church. He kind of saw, you know, you know, that wasn't really a good enough reason. I didn't say it to him, but my mind always says this. Yep, when you left because of all the hypocrites, they had one less hypocrite among them. So we're all hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Somewhere in your life, you're hypocritical, and you're going to get caught at some point, right? And so this family, you, you have... You don't, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you really don't. You're put into a family. You're not an only child. You can't live independently. You cannot read the letters of Paul. You can't read the New Testament and come to the conclusion that you can even be a Christian without belonging to God's family. It's this way, and it's this way from the beginning. If you belong to God from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, you belong to a family. You belong to the people of God. When it's not just a family. You're called a nation. You're called a people. You can't get away from that. And you do need, you know, we all need to learn the family dynamics and put up with the crazies. Because they're putting up with us. And we need each other. So there's a fifth, a fifth element. It's um, a redefined purpose in life. Uh, Paul begins immediately to tell others about Jesus. And Jesus very specifically says, if you're going to be my disciple, which means my follower, you're going to be my follower you are going to go and tell others. You're going to tell others about me. Others need to hear about me. You are called into service for him. If you read the Bible, if you hear Jesus and what he says, if you understand, I mean, really understand what he says, you cannot argue with another thing Charles Spurgeon said, but he said often, which was every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you read your own Bible, you cannot argue with that statement. You are either a missionary or you're an imposter, which brings us back around to what we've been asking. How do you know you're an authentic Christian? Well, you cannot have had that encounter with Jesus, listened to Jesus, learned from Jesus, and not have inside of you, even if you're not good at it, even if you're afraid and don't do it as much as you should and, and really you know, feel guilty about it, there should be something in you that says, I'm a missionary. I'm called to tell other people about Jesus. And the day that you don't feel that you need to tell other people about Jesus because it's all going to work out, you have walked away from what Jesus taught. And if you walk away from what Jesus taught, are you really a follower of Jesus? So these are the five necessary elements. Let's look at them really quickly, but let's ask the question of ourselves. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? And in that encounter, have you humbly surrendered to God? Now let's just stop here for a moment. Because if you have not had that, you have not surrendered. Judas had a personal encounter with Jesus. The devil had a personal encounter with Jesus in the temptation. But Christians then humble themselves and surrender to him. And if you haven't done that today, you can do that. And you do that by placing your faith in Jesus. You just tell him. You just tell him, I, I recognize who you are and what you did for me. And I throw myself at your grace and your mercy. 
And I thank you that you've forgiven me based on what Jesus did on the cross. You can do that today. Come be my leader. Come be my Lord. And what follows from that, have you begun to reevaluate everything in light of Christ? Are you connected to your church family, to a church family, to other believers? Are you living a repurposed life? Those are things we can, those are questions that we can reflect on, pray about as we continue our service responding to him in worship. So let's pray.